0: Would you all stand with me you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. We'll read that together. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. Verse 18. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became the futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is the word of the Lord. Can you pray with me? O oh Lord, our God, you are so great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. Yet to us you make darkness your pavilion. We do not know how to approach you, God, because of the darkness that veils in our essence. We have heard this message concerning you, and we affirm that it is true. You are light, and in you is no darkness at all. You are the Father of light. In you there is no inconsistency. You do not change like shifting shadows. You are love, and those who dwell in love dwell in you, and you in them. O oh God, every good and perfect gift comes from you. You are the blessed and the only King of kings and Lord of lords. You alone are immortal. You live in the light which no one can approach. No one has ever seen you or can see you. Oh, how wonderful and amazing you are, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may hey, be seated. Our children are dismissed at this moment. Being sick is is bad enough. But imagine if in addition to this, your doctors have no clear diagnosis to give you. Imagine if no one could figure out what was wrong with you. Doctors, as a term for this, they call it mystery illness. And patients with mystery symptoms tend to get lots of tests and shuffled to a lot of specialists. More people are in this limbo of have, having no answer to their symptoms. It can be frustrating to both patients and doctors, especially for doctors who like having answers and hates looking foolish. One doctor goes on to write, We all want to uncover the mystery diagnosis, but we must accept an unfortunate possibility that sometimes there is no diagnosis. There are diseases that are very common and ones that are very uncommon. In most cases, regardless of how good or bad the news, Just having a clear diagnosis is a blessing because you will have a choice to do something about it. As we go through verse 18 to 21 this morning, you will no longer be in limbo of having an illness without a diagnosis. God, the great physician, will give you a clear diagnosis prior to you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the condition of those who are without faith. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus clearly says, It is not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Bible confirms what I think all of us already know that we are once sick, and our world is sick, and some of you are still sick. And your diagnosis is fatal physically and spiritually. And I need to ask you, how would you diagnose your own spiritual condition? How would you assess your spiritual condition? See, but you must first accept that you are, in some way, spiritually sick. And not because of bad luck, a bad childhood, or unjust circumstances, or something medical or psychological. People spend millions every year in medication and therapy trying to figure out these things out but if you ask most people the question what's wrong with the world you will get a lot of different answers because everyone seems to have a different diagnosis some would say politics is to blame others say it's greed or Social inequality, the rich gets richer, the poor gets poorer, others would say it's a lack of education, or religion is to be blamed, and the list could go on and on and on. And what I hope you will see in Romans chapter 1 is this connection between sin and the analogy of sickness. For the past couple months, through the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul has been telling us that that this is about the gospel. This book is about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus Christ. And he describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes by faith. In the gospel, he says, God's righteousness is revealed. The good news is that God, in his righteousness, is giving people an opportunity to be saved. After stating his thesis, he explains that if you can't be one, over by God's kindness perhaps (coughs) the fear of God will get you to notice him this is not a scare tactic but really an eminent reality a natural result of our sin is judgment Paul continues to explain the gospel in more detail Starting with our need for the gospel. Then he explains that we're not going in a morally neutral direction. You're actually the enemy of God. And should therefore expect God to be angry with you. You need a message of good news so that you can come to love God rather than be afraid of Him. We have two points this morning. God's general indictment over His creation and God's specific indictment. I want us to imagine that you are in in a courtroom scene where God is your judge. But in this courtroom, there's a difference. There'll be no excuses. Your excuses are not valid. That your case is pretty much shut. There's no defense for it. It is God speaking as your judge. And this, this is his charge towards you. This is his charge to the world. This is an indictment from God, and it's a general. And he starts off with a, with God's general indictment. Look at verse eighteen with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The verse begins with four, which flows out of verse sixteen and seventeen, where. Paul shows us that the gospel is necessary not simply to make you happy, but because there is such a thing as the wrath of God that one will face without Jesus Christ. You see, the flip side to the revelation of God's righteousness, which you mentioned in verse 17, is the revelation of his righteous wrath. Because the gospel rests on the assumption that all human beings are apart from the gospel are under the wrath of God. And if you don't understand or believe in this wrath, the gospel will never excite you, it will never empower you, and it will never, never move you. How many of you here have had a hard time with the idea of God's wrath? Some people think that this is unnecessary and unfair. However, when it comes down to it, most people today don't believe in God's wrath. Let's say someone hurts someone you love. many of you probably would not mind that person receiving a little wrath, don't you? How many of you guys have here prayed to give somebody who has hurt you a little wrath? How many of you guys have prayed for more wrath? Right we do this prayer, don't we? God, I can't hurt the person. Can you please hurt that person? Right? So we have this idea that we could actually, I mean, of course, the Bible tells us also that there are some points that you can't pray that. Right? But so when you determine someone has done something wrong, you're okay with them receiving God's wrath. You don't mind God judging sin. But one thing that you do mind is if He judges your sin. Sadly, many churches today only preach about the blessing and the joy that comes from God's salvation. Like the peace of God that comes through faith. All of those are good, very good. But this is not the whole picture of God's plan for salvation. There's also the truth of His judgment against sin. I'm convinced that a failure to preach and the failure to teach on the topic of God's wrath It's a tragic to any church. And it's a tragic to really the gospel message. You see, for Paul, fear for eternal condemnation was his motivation in preaching the gospel. He says that this wrath is revealed, meaning it's present reality for those who are living in ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because this is an attack on, on the majesty of God. For, for many of you, when you think of judgment, you think about its past, or its, his, his past or, or future judgments, which one day will happen, of course, once and for all. But Paul, no wonder, he was so firm that you understand the reality of being under the wrath of God. Because, be, because if we will have an understanding of God's wrath, we will really appreciate what God offered to us to escape from it. You see, a person cannot fully grasp God's amazing grace until one knows God's perfect demands for His law. There's no way for you and I to fully appreciate God's love until you know something about His anger against your sinful failure to what? To perfectly obey His perfect law. There is just no way you can fully appreciate God's offer of forgiveness until you know about it's sin's penalty. See, sin has a penalty whether you like it or not. It does. And then to appreciate the good news of the gospel, you need to realize that there's a bad news. and The bad news is His wrath is being revealed in its present reality. Right now, at this moment, God has judged America. Not because... America is bad, it is bad, but because it's ungodly and it's wicked. That's why Paul used the Greek word orge, wrath, referring to a settled, determined fury, not to the momentary emotional outbursts and often uncontrolled anger to which you and I are all prone to do and be. God's anger is not like our anger. His anger is perfectly righteous and loving at the same time. In Psalms 45, verse 7, the psalmist testified, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, loves justice and hate evil. God's attributes are balanced. It's very balanced with His divine perfection. You see, if He had no righteous anger and wrath, He would not be God. Just as surely as He would not be God without His gracious love. God must uphold His own holiness. Because without it, He's no longer God. He perfectly hates evil. Just as much as He perfectly loves righteousness. And without His wrath, it would violate everything about who He is. The Old Testament clearly shows God's wrath both in reference to what he has already done and to what he will yet do in the end of the age. People have this picture that that God the God of the Old Testament is this mon this moral monster. Right? That when you read the Old Testament, you know when people say that the, the Bible is boring? Just read the Old Testament. There is no way it is boring, right? When you say, "Oh, you know, it's it's not very bloody," are you kidding me? It's blood everywhere. When you say it's not exciting, it's, oh, you just got to keep reading, right? I keep reading, and then, yet, there's this picture of God in the Old Testament that thinks that he's only about just and wrath and and anger, and and the New Testament God is is kind, and and loving, and and gracious, but you know what love says about God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change, why? Because as much as he perfectly loves righteousness, he perfectly hates unrighteousness, he does, Just look what happened in the days of Noah when the whole earth was filled with wickedness and and God sent a great flood to eliminate and wipe out sin. And then yet, Genesis 6 verse 6 says, God was deeply troubled. In in other words, he, He was sad and grieved. He wasn't angry. He was sad and grieved. Why? Because He has made man in His image Designed to reflect his glory and enjoy his presence. And in return, this society's people rejected him and turned away from him. What would God do? Just allow sin to continue? No, he must judge it. You don't think that Noah appreciated the good news? He surely did, didn't he? Along with his family. But when did it happen? When he realized that there was a bad news. And the bad news is that if you were outside of the ark, you were doomed. About three weeks ago, we were able to see a replica of the ark. The the ark, not Noah's ark. Okay, the replica of the ark. And we went in there and, and saw, whoa! And people think, you know, it was a cruise ship and and Noah and his family just like feasting. And I'm like looking at this, I go, this is a lot of work. They have to feed all these animals and take care of all these animals. And yet, what was inside the ark is really salvation, wasn't it? Isn't it really salvation for the eight of them? Because the alternative is what? They're outside of the ark. <laughs> and what? Dying. Do you guys see why the bad news is so important for us to appreciate the good news? Right? And it's been bad news, hasn't it been? Have you guys heard the news lately? Bad news? Have you ever seen a good, turn on a TV and you said, man, I'm looking forward to some good news? There isn't one. All right? Have you ever turned the news and say, no one got killed? Zero today got killed. In Chicago no it's not that zero got killed in Chicago It's how many people got killed in Chicago isn't it and then Thursday came along this week and says the stock market is down all my coins are gone <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> doom bad news but you know what really the bad news is? Is that without Christ, you and I will have no hope. Amen. That's the real bad news. In John 3.16, all of us love this. Okay, without looking at your Bibles, it's a real test. Okay, would you, would you decide John 3.16 with me? All right, this is a real test. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation here, but uh, we get pretty close. Okay? Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. This is the reality. God loves the world. And how did he love the world? He gave the most precious gift of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ and whoever believes in him what's the promise you, have you will have everlasting life Amen. but you must believe you're not forced to believe you must believe and then in chapter 3 verse 36 are you guys ready for this one let's let's recite 36 together oh you're not so excited about 36 Okay, I'll let you cheat and open your Bibles to three thirty-six. Okay, three thirty-six says this. It's very sobering. He who does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Would you look again to three seventeen and eighteen with me again at Roman of John chapter three and and I think it just brings more to light um, about the importance of salvation. Where it says here, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. But look at verse 18 with me. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned when? Already. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you know that this is the only way that one person could be condemned? It's if he failed to believe in his Son. It says here, there's only two kinds of people in the world. One, one who believes in him, has eternal life. And one who does not believe in him and is condemned already. Those are the only two people in the world. And you say, why is that important? It's important because it's the most important thing ever. Imagine if one does not believe, one will spend the rest of their existence in a Christless eternity. Christless eternity. Not a month, not a week, not a year in hell and apart from Christ and from His glory, but their whole entire existence will be in torture. Later in in Romans 9.22, Paul focused on God's wrath saying, In the same way, even though God has the right to show His anger and His power, He is very patient with those whom His anger falls. Who are destined for destruction. So to say that God is this angry God, He's not. He's actually very patient with those on whom His anger falls. God is slow to anger, but He does not ever wink at sin. But maybe the greatest demonstration of God's wrath that we have ever seen occurred some 2,000 years ago. And Jesus went to the cross and bore our sins. There on the cross, the full portion of God's wrath is poured into the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. And at the end of that six hours, he cried out, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because he was bearing the entire wrath of God against your sins, against my sins, against the sins of the world. That's what happened there on that Friday. It wasn't an ordinary Friday. It was a Friday that he took all my sin and your sins and what? And took the whole wrath of God. In second Corinthians 5:21 I still think apart from John 3:16 this is one of the beautiful passages in the New Testament where where Paul says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God At the cross God offers everyone the deal of a lifetime that their sin can be forgiven you see, every one of us owes a debt to God and that we can never repay. And because God is holy, he must punish sin. Yet in Ephesians 2 4, because of his great love that he has for you, he sent his sinless son to become your substitute. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. The theological term for this transaction is called imputation. You see, God is not just showing us, showing wrath towards people. He is showing it towards people, sinful people. You know, at times people often think that God is, is just being mean. He's, just giving, He's really just giving us what we deserve because of our unrighteousness. See, unrighteousness or godlessness is sin against God. It's a violation of the first tablet of the law. Romans three eighteen summarizes sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, John Stott says it is the attempt to get rid of God, and since that is impossible, determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. Ungodliness, a uh, while, is wickedness. It's sin against man. It's a violation of the second tablet of the law. This refers to a lack of reverence for or devotion to, and and worship of the true God, and a failure that certainly leads to some of our false worship. In Jude fourteen and fifteen, tells us about Enoch, the seventh generation descendant of Adam, who prophesied about God's coming to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all, all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way of and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four times in this two verses, he uses the term ungodly to describe the focus of God's wrath on sinful man. Both of this represent sin, rebellion against God, and because men's relation to God is wrong, as a result, their relation to their fellow man will be wrong. Some people often think, you know, why do I sin against someone I love? How many of you guys have ever questioned that? Why do you sin against someone you love? How many of you guys have ever been in that position? If I love someone so much, why do I sin against them? If I love them so much, why do I do an awful things to them? Why? Why do I do it? Often people blame, you know, what did I do? Or what did someone do? It's actually when you violated the first tablet of the law and you have this false worship about God, everything else breaks down. The reason why you have breakdown in your relationship is because you have a breakdown with a God relationship. So before you could even say, who do I blame? Who do I point the finger to? The only finger you need to point to is yourself and your relationship with God. Because when that relationship is broken with God, the guarantee is this, your relationship with each other will be broken. And the only way that you have harmony with, with your family, your friends, your wife, and your husband, your children, is when you have harmony with God. But when that fails, everything else fails. And you see, a disease must be recognized and identified before seeking a cure in the same way and, and for the same reason, scripture reveals the bad before the good. God's judgment against sin is proclaimed before his gracious forgiveness of sin is offered. Because a naturally, naturally a person has no reason to seek God and salvation from sin. If one does know that they already stand condemned, one has no reason to want spiritual life unless one realizes that they are spiritually dead. Do you know that the only way you could really find out that if you're really in need of God is when you have this admission and this acknowledgement that you are spiritually sick. That you are dead in your trespasses of sin and by nature children of wrath. And once you recognize that about yourself, that I need a cure because I am sick and I am desperately sick. That's the one, that's the time when you will actually come to God with a contract and a, contract and a broken spirit. And then when that broken spirit says, God, I need you. I need you. I need you to save me. Cause if you don't save me, I am doomed. And then the good news, then the good news really becomes the good news because you realize the bad news. Amen. And it's always been this way. Realize how bad we are, and how bad you are, and how good Jesus is. And when you realize that He alone can save you, and then you realize really the power of the gospel. And so God is God's general indictment on humanity. Now God gets very specific. God's specific indictment. Here it gets even more personal. Uh, here your case is before the judge. Alright. How many of you guys here would like to see the indictment against you by God? How many of you guys would like to see it? Just a glimpse of how much of you violated his laws. How many of you guys would like to see it? No? None of you want to see it? Just a little peek. And maybe you see that, man, I'm, I'm not really that bad. Because it actually might show you that you're really, really bad. <laughs> right? What if tonight you don't sleep and all night long is indictment from God from the time of birth? You will not sleep for a long time if you ever see your indictment right and then so now your case is before a judge and this judge he's an all-knowing judge he's not just all-knowing but he is what just not only just, but loving at the same time right so you're before this judge right and then There's a specific charge and indictment against you. Right? This is not one of those OJ Simpson that the glove doesn't fit. No, no, no. The glove fits. And it's you that fits that glove. It's not like you need to push it, it fits like a glove. Right? So when the indictment is read, the only response you have is this I am guilty. That's the only response you'll have. There's no way that when this indictment is read, that you will walk away not guilty. No way. None of you. If the Bible is true, He says no one is righteous. No, not what? One. Right? So all of us stand what? Guilty before a perfect judge. And he's reading your indictment. And all you can say is this. Guilty. Nothing else you can say. There's no like, God, I'm guilty, but you know someone's worse. <laughs> God, God, I'm guilty, but I know someone I know is a lot worse than I am. Right? God, why don't you judge that person first or more? That was such a thing. How many of you guys here could find somebody that's worse than you? Just look around. <laughs> Just absolutely look around. I see your judgmental eyes already. John is saying, Oh, so it's definitely worse. I've been to church much longer. <laughs> Sorry, man. You're still guilty. He begins his case with every person's need for the gospel, which is namely the fact of the wrath of God will fall upon every member of the sinful human race who is without Jesus Christ. And he starts here because the good news of the gospel is never good news until you first know the bad news. And here's the first indictment. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The first indictment is ignorance. Paul tells us that God is justified in His wrath against sinners because of what God has revealed to all mankind. The apostle here is speaking especially to Gentiles who did not have the benefit of God's real word. But he was also speaking to Jews who doubly guilty of rejecting God's natural and universal revelation of Himself. Not just in creation, but in conscience. But even rejecting His unique written revelation through His written word, through the prophets. You see, no one can find God on his own initiative, or by his own wisdom, or searching. Yet God has never left man on his own initiative, or in his own understanding, but has graciously provided us abundant evidence of himself. Praise God. Amen. Right? I'm going to say this. Don't Please get this right. Okay, you have the right to leave the sanctuary and go home if you just get this point. No one can find God on his own initiative or by his own wisdom or searching. No one. He must act on your behalf. He must. And God has graciously provided an abundance of evidence himself. Just look around you. How many of you guys here have been to the Grand Canyon? How many of you guys here been in the Grand Canyon? How about have you seen the a picture of the Grand Canyon? you guys seen at least a picture of the Grand Canyon? Okay, I'm getting, it's getting bad here. How many of you guys know that there's a Grand Canyon? <laughs> okay, the, at least can we agree that there's a Grand Canyon? Okay, it's not a hearsay. There's an actually Grand Canyon. Greg, is there a Grand Canyon? Why is there a Grand Canyon, Greg? Because that's where you met your wife, right? There's a Grand Canyon. And it's it's been Grand ever since, hasn't it been? You better say amen to that. <laughs> I just want to tell you, there's a Grand Canyon. And when you look at the Grand Canyon, do you see this? Oh, a big rock just exploded on this place. Oh, that must be a big rock that just like created all these things. Right? it got to be a random chance. It must be. It must have evolved through time. It must be. Right? But when you take back and just look, you see what? The grandeur of an architect, an engineer who's perfect in his what? Creation. That's what you see, don't you? Last year we were in Maui and we had to drive up to Hali Hakala. Right? Is that what it's pronounced? All right. Uh, my, My wife pronounced it differently. Hala, hala, hala. <laughs> I think mean, that's how she pronounced it. So, so, no. she can never get it, but you know, if we forgive her. And we're above the clouds. Above the clouds. Can you imagine that being above the clouds? Right? And then Tim was driving us down. He says, We're going down the clouds. I go, Look, look in front of you. Don't drive to the clouds. We will fall. <laughs> and then. I just want to tell you, when you look at creation, when you look at everything that God has created in this world, in this beautiful world that He created, you must be convinced that what? There's a master architect behind this, don't you? And His name is God, and He is called Creator. Paul says here, What can be known? Meaning, what God has sovereignly, universally made Himself evident to all men. Therefore, no person can plead ignorance of God. Because He has always revealed Himself and continues to reveal Himself. You see, God can only be known as He chooses to make Himself known. And the initiative is with Him. So when someone says, you know what, it's not fair, the Gospel is not fair. How about those people on the far side of the world, in Africa, that will never hear the Gospel? Have you guys ever heard that? What about them? And you know what this got, what this passage says? No, no one has an excuse because I have made myself known to all men. God must make the truth about himself evident if he is to be known. God must act first and disclose himself to man. that's why God is perfectly just to condemn those who are totally ignorant of him. I love what the apostle says next. God made it plain to him it's so plain. There has been so much debate about what theologians call natural revelation. It's important for us to really begin our discussion of this subject with a definition. Natural revelation means a revelation of God in nature because it's available to everyone. You see, nature reveals God in such a way that even without a special revelation of God that we have in the Bible, all men and women are at least aware that God exists. And this awareness of God will not save them but it's definitely sufficient enough to condemn him. Amen. A deceased left Helen Keller as a very young girl without sight, hearing, and speech. Through Anne Sullivan's tireless and selfless efforts, Helen Keller finally learned to communicate through touch and even learned to talk. When Miss Sullivan first tried to tell Helen about God, the girl's response was that she already knew about him, just didn't know his name. John 1, 9 testifies of Jesus as a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And here's the sad solution, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Sadly... uh, John here is not speaking about the saving knowledge of God, which comes only through faith, but the intellectual knowledge of God, which comes to every man, to every man's conscience. Sadly, this awareness of God is not enough to save them, but it's definitely enough to condemn them if they fail to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since everyone has a witness of God, and therefore every person is accountable to follow the opportunity to respond to him in faith. The created order cannot force a person to believe, but it does leave the recipient responsible for not believing. You see, if God were to exercise only his justice, no person would ever be saved. It is therefore hardly unjust if according to his sovereign grace, he chooses to elect some sinners for salvation, to show grace to those who will call on his name. Look at verse 20 with me. For his invincible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse." Paul now gets very specific about how God makes Himself known to all mankind. Since the creation of the world, God has continued to show His invincible attributes, His eternal power referring to His omnipotence which is reflected in the awesome creation. His divine nature refers to His graciousness and His kindness. So God's natural revelation of Himself is not selective but it's observable only by, this pers- by a few percentage souls who are specially gifted. No! His revelation of Himself is true creation can be clearly seen by everyone being understood through what He has made. You see, long before the telescope and the microscope were invented, the greatness of God was evident. You can look at the stars and discover the fixed order of their orbits. You can absorb a small seed and reproduce itself into a giant tree exactly like the one from which it came. How about the marvelous cycles of the seasons, the rain and the snow? How about the miracles of the human birth, the glory of the sunset and the sunrise? Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Amen. Men are judged and sent to hell not because they do not live up to the light evidence in the universe, but because they ultimately rejected Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. He said, "I will." the Holy Spirit will come and He will convict the world concerning sin. He will convict the world concerning righteousness and He will bring forth judgment. And in John 16, 8 and 9, He says this, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. In His faithfulness, though, He provided His hearers the gospel by some means or another. Is that true of you? Did the, did God provide the gospel to come to you by so by some means? Did it? Right? And did you actually say, you know what? I think it's time for me to search the gospel. No. You're incapable of it. You actually will run away from it if you if you had the opportunity to. And what Paul is saying here is that that God has provided every year that he created the gospel by some means or another. In his sovereign predetermined grace, he has reached out to all sinful mankind. He has. And aren't you glad you're one of them? Have you ever questioned why God will save some people and, and some people will not be saved? Have you guys ever had that question before? Right? How many guys have ever felt that that's unfair of God? That he should just save everyone, no matter how filthy or how unrighteous and how ungodly they live. That God is required because he's a God of love to save them. That forget about his holiness, forget about his justice, forget about anything else. Just save everyone. No, because that's not a God of the Bible. It's not. The God of the Bible says, I am loving, but I'm also just. But here's how he feels about the loss. In Ezekiel 33 verse 11, says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. God has no desire for, the, takes no pleasure at all, that the wicked will die eternally. Instead, he desires for the wicked to turn from his way and live and repent. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's desire. And he will give his elect the privilege of hearing the gospel and bring them to himself. And the Lord promised in, in Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek me and find me when you what? Search for me with all your heart. That's what he says, Right? Right? But before we could seek Him, before we could find Him, before he could, we could search Him with all our heart, He put that initiative in us. And we call that faith. And He gave us this faith to believe so that we could, what? Seek Him and find Him and search for Him. Amen. He gave us this heart. You see, this is clearly seen in Acts 8, the story of the eunuch, who was sincerely seeking God. And the Holy Spirit sent Philip to share the gospel to him. And upon hearing, he believed and was baptized. Remember Cornelius, the devout man, the one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And God sent Peter to him to explain the gospel to him. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and they were baptized. Lydia was a true worshiper of God. When she heard the gospel and the Lord opened her heart. I want you guys to see this. It's the Lord who initiates all this. It's the Lord who initiates for him to be known. It's the Lord who initiates to give you faith. It's the Lord who initiates for you to be saved. All glory to God. Amen. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book titled God is There and He is Not Silent. And I quote, God is is a speaking God who is always revealing himself throughout the whole earth. Do you now see why people are without excuse? There's no person who will be able to stand before God on the last day and say that He did not know, He did not know that God existed. No, God will tell him, "I made myself known to you." And when people reject God, people say, "Oh, I just didn't know God. I didn't know it was You, Jesus." People who says people who question the Bible, Bible ain't true. It's a bunch of fairy tales. You know, it's not true. It's not true. And they will find it in their hearts to find the Bible to be not true. And they will look at it as like, oh, that's fantasy world. It was written by men, Yes, full of errors, full of contradiction. It does not. You find me one. You will not find one. Because the very word of God that you're holding right now is inerrant. Amen. It's inspired. Amen. And everything in it is true. And if God says that if you believe, you will have eternal life. And if you don't believe, you are judged and condemned already. That's what it says. And that is true. And they will find out one day that that is true. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. um, It says here, through Him God created everything in heavenly realms and, and on earth. He made the things we can see. And the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and what? For him. Our conclusion should be this. There's a creator, and he's awesome, and he's far beyond our own greatest imagination. And his might far far exceeds any power and any human can conceive. So to believe that all that exists merely happened by chance, it's an absolute nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Because every person should be able to conclude that it's that he has a maker and he's very powerful. I mean, just look at the oceans with water, layer up the towering mountains, laid up the foundation for the people, and hung the sun and the moon and the planets in outer space. Do you know that if we are the earth is closer to the sun that we're all burned? That if we're a little bit further from the sun, that we'll all freeze? Who who does that? Is is that chance? Right? And who's upholding all of that? There must be a God. Do you believe in a God? Do you believe it? Do you believe there's a God? There is one. And he's awesome. Second indictment, our last point. Ingratitude. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul continues to support God's righteous judgment because of man's intentional, willful rejection of Him. Here Paul clearly says that they knew God. They still reject Him as Creator and King. This is what it talks about, suppressing the truth. They know the truth and yet they go the other way. That's what he means to suppress the truth. You see, this is not as if they misunderstood who he was. It's actually quite the opposite. And remember, I, I said that to you earlier, and judgment is based on this fact, that God is light it came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. Because their actions showed it. As a result of your suppressing the truth about God, three things begin to happen. First, You fail to honor and thank God for all that He is and has done for you. What should knowledge of God lead you to? It should lead you to honor Him and thank Him for all the many blessings. Praise God from whom all what? Blessings what? Flow. does not it? We sing it all the time, don't you? Don't we? Do we believe it? It should lead us to honor Him and thank Him. Instead, most people walk through life suppressing the truth of God's existence and live in gratitude and in selfishness. This is the basic expression of sin of pride. This is the worst deed committed in the universe. is to failure to give God the glory to his name. Martin Luther says, As a person would be foolish to look for money only to look at it without trying to get it into his possession. So the heathen, though they knew God, were satisfied with, with and glorified in the mere knowledge of him. They left out of of mind his worship, in particular the inward dedication to God whom they knew. To glorify God is to admit that he is totally worthy of your honor and to acknowledge all of his divine attributes. That's what it means to glorify God. And the one thing that God will never do is share his glory with you. Never will share his glory with you. He is in love with his own glory. First Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything a believer does, whether a significant task or something as mundane as eating and drinking must bring glory to God. I know Friday was not an indication of that to those of you guys who went to graduation. It is not an indication of giving God glory. Uh, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, it's giving God no glory <laughs> at all. Man was created to glorify God, and for Him to fail in doing so is the ultimate ingratitude. Would you turn your Bible me to Luke 17? Just Luke 17. I just wanted to read you the story in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, On the way to Jerusalem, He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lift up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Where not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was not no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Again we see this word, your faith has made you well. How many of us are could identify we're well, just lepers? Right? And we cried out to God for what? Mercy. Did we? And then when we got what we wanted from God, His mercy, nine of them walked away and saying, I don't need God anymore. I don't need God anymore. I could do it now on my own. So we live life with this ungrateful heart. And this ungrateful heart leads to this false worship And we're only really worshipping ourselves. And we make ourselves like God. And you come to church thinking that you could worship Him with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. No. God shall not be mocked. No way. You know why we come here? We come here because we're still desperate, aren't we? We come here because we still need mercy. And we come here so we could give him thanks. That's why we come here. Do you know why you come to church? Why you come to church is because we give him thanks. Because he deserves all of it. Because when he said, I am the one that did not deserve his mercy. And he gave me mercy. And what should I give him in return? My whole self. Amen. At least get to church on time. At least what you could do. so sad sometimes that for all the things that God has done for us and the only thing that we give back to Him is God, I'll see you when I see you. I'll serve you when when it's comfortable and when it's convenient. God, you called me to do something. I'll wait and to see if life is easy first. Let me get my security all first and then I'll serve you. God, I'll love you when it's convenient. Other than that, does God just be content that I even attend? No. It's not acceptable to God and it will never be acceptable to Him. The second way, as a consequence of their failing to honor God, men have become futile in their thinking by replacing truth for falsehood. You're not thinking with a biblical worldview, but with a worldly sinful way of thinking. Your entire thought process is wrapped up in honoring yourself and living in selfishness and to indulge your own lustful appetites. And then the third way, Paul defines this in gratitude that it produces a darkened heart. A heart that is dark does not become rational. Many unbelievers like to claim that they can do whatever they want free, but it only shows that they are more spiritually darkened and further enslaved to sin. Self-deception is when you place yourself on the throne of your life and become your own God, and you end up deceiving yourself by thinking you're actually wise, when in reality you are a fool. In addition, you're not only do you begin to have sinful thinking patterns, but your heart, the seed of your affection becomes darkened when your mind and heart have become so dull and blinded and cold and rebellious to God, it leads you to have a false sense of reality about your own spiritual condition, and you think you're fine. And as a result, because of man's pride and your pride and your fertility and a darkened heart, ultimately you will fail to give God thanks for all His gracious provisions. This unbelief is made worse by this ingratitude. Although God is a source of everything good that we have, like the rain, the sun, and other natural blessings to, to the just and to the just alike, the natural fails to thank Him because He fails even to confess His existence. Ingratitude is a sin that comes with severe repercussions. Being unthankful is the very essence of an unregenerate heart. It's that essence of an unrepentant heart. And scripture says much about God as well as the lack of it. God only knows how you are made and He designed you to thrive when you are humble and when you live moral lives and you are thankful and grateful but when you are arrogant and you are immoral and you are ungrateful, you cannot have fellowship with God nor can you experience all that it means to be His child. And God included repeated, repeated commands about being thankful, reminding us that a grateful heart is a happy heart. First Thessalonians 5 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in what? All circumstances? Not when it's convenient. In all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Colossians 3.15 Be thankful. You see, thankfulness toward God requires a belief in God at the very least. While ingratitude fails to fulfill, the basic responsibility is simply acknowledge Him as God. And when you refuse to be thankful or to express gratitude, you will grow proud. And eventually you will take God for all he has given you as a result becomes your own gods. And don't think that God's wrath comes in response to our bad manners. No, it comes because you are ungrateful. When he's, what he's saying here is that you are a plagiarist. You take what God has made and take credit for it. You don't concede your dependence on him. You're claiming Independent, thinking that you call the shots and decide what is right and wrong. And the bottom line that all of us here are ungrateful because you don't accept what he has done for you. You don't admit, you don't acknowledge enough that God is the source of all good in your life, isn't he? Is he the source of all good in your life? Amen. All oh. then he is, then give him the honor due his name. When you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you do is to express gratitude to him for giving you another day. I have two minutes. I'm wrapping up. Every morning I'm reminded that I am who I am by the grace of God, alone. I wake up every morning knowing that the cancer that lives inside of me can kill me at any, any day. I live every moment by faith that I woke up this morning And then I get to decide, what do I do with that moment that he gives me? I wake up every day knowing that I'm one stomachache away from, from going to glory. We take life for granted, don't we? Thinking that we have tomorrow, that we're already planning tomorrow. And yet, tomorrow is never promised to you. It's never promised to me. Has it been promised to you? And yet we live each day thinking that, oh, not a day. Instead of living life saying, you know what, I'm, I'm living gratitude. I get to live today because Christ is with me. Amen? Amen? I get to live today because what God is with me. I get to live because I could, it could be a blessed day, couldn't it be? Amen. That's why we could be thankful how so what how can I be thankful how you know when life is hard isn't it hard to sing when life is hard isn't it hard to sing right that's actually when you sing the loudest I sing a lot I I don't I didn't say I sing well (laughs) I just said I sing a lot (laughs) and I do I sing a lot I sing every day there's not a day that I don't sing why? Because I get to sing. Some people doesn't get to do that. You know what else? How many guys here don't value your eyes enough that you can see? You know how awful it'd be if you're blind. You know how awful that would be. It's it's awful. You can't drive, or I mean, some people can drive blind. <laughs> I mean, some you know someone in our life group could 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 drive blind but you know but uh, something else a different story okay but can you imagine our eyes our eyes could do this we could open his book and we could see him and we could touch him and we could feel him because your word is a light into my path isn't it it is isn't it what else how you give him thanks? Pray. Pray that I can't do it. <laughs> Pray that I'm dependent on you, God only. Amen. You know how else you best serve someone? Now, to give thanks to God by serving other people. See, sing praise to Him. Number one, that's how you give thanks. Read His Word. It's awesome. Pray. Serve God. And you now Sarah's about to have a baby. And, and Godfrey only likes Filipino food. So learn how to make Filipino food. All <laughs> right? Right? You know what else? There's a tired mom here. And sometimes you just need to offer say, you know what? Go on a date. I go on a date, I'll take care of your kids. Right, Aaron? Right? Right? Isn't that right? Isn't it good just to serve someone so we could give thanks to God and show our gratitude for what he has done for us? Because no matter what we'll do to other people, it will never be enough what he has done for you. We will never top it. He is so good. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so thankful and grateful for that, you've shown yourself to us. At this moment, would you just—we'll uh, just have a moment of silence, and we'll just, in your wherever you are, would you just thank God? Would you just thank God for what He's created? Would you—would you just thank God that He allows Himself for you to get to know Him? that he initiated faith, that he initiated his knowledge of him to you, who just be at this moment, just in silence, just give him thanks. Thank him for Jesus Christ. Would you thank him for the gospel? Would you give him the glory to his name? Will you tell him that, I, God, with your help, I will live a grateful life. Oh, God, you deserve all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.